0: So I remember I picked up a number of those, and then after the crisis, you know, I would sell them here or there as they started to appreciate or get to different targets I had. But then what? You know, then you find yourself with all this with cash, and the markets are a lot higher.
1: Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big. You've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here as your worst podcast host today, and I'm with featured guest, Chris Mayer. Chris, are you ready to rock? I am ready. Let me tell the audience about you. Chris Mayer is co-founder and portfolio manager of Woodlock House Family Capital Fund. He also blogs about the thing he loves the most, which is investing. He started his career as a corporate lender, which taught him about managing risk. Hmm, We're going to learn about that today, I think, <laughs> and how <laughs> business works. Next, he started his own newsletter called Capital in Crisis, which led him into 15 years of writing investment newsletters. Chris has also written four books, Invest Like a Deal Maker, Secrets from a Former Banking Insider, The World Right Side Up, Investing Across Six Continents, 100 baggers, stocks that return 100 to 1 and how to find them. Damn, that was a great one. And how do you know? A guide to investing, Wall Street and life. You can find him on Twitter at Chris W. Mayer. So Chris, take a minute and fill in for the tidbits about your life.
0: Well, I think, Andrew, I want to say something about how we met because it's kind of interesting. I used to do a lot of traveling all through emerging markets and all through, you know, Asia and South America, I went all over the place looking for investment ideas and trying to figure out the world. And in 2011, I went to Thailand, and uh, that was an interesting time to go. You probably remember this was late 2011. There was a big flood, and in fact, I came. To the airport There was hardly anybody there. The streets were empty. I remember going to the hotel and they had sandbag defenses around the. In all the buildings had piles of yeah. sandbags. It was a. It was a pretty wild time. I also remember that well because I walked into the hotel and in the lobby and they addressed me by name. I was like the only one that was scheduled to <laughs> check in. Well, a you know, like, you know. guest. Yeah. Welcome, Mr. Mayor. How are you? How do you know it was me? Well, you're the only one coming in. So. But anyway, the next day and later afternoon, I met you. At that time, you were a strategist for yep. Kimang Securities. and Exactly. You were putting out, like a, I remember, a flipbook publication called Stats. Stocks. Yeah, yeah. So that was, that was a lot of fun. I remember you gave me a, a good overview of Thailand and, and stocks there. So mm. uh, I thought I'd, I'd give, uh, give that little tidbit.
1: Well, it's a, it's a good memory. And it's nice to know that we kept a friendship over those years. That's pretty, That's right. pretty right. awesome. And we both changed and done a lot of different things over that time. Oh, man. So. Oh, man. Well, you know, most people don't realize that Thailand is pretty much a floodplain from Chiang Mai all the way down to the Gulf of Thailand. That flood basically, you know, it was a huge amount of rain, but really it was the dams that let loose. And so basically from Chiang Mai all the way down to Bangkok was just under, you know, houses and and communities were under, you know, two, three meters of water. You know, unbelievable. I have a friend of mine that has a factory and just north of Bangkok. He came in, you know, that day and basically his factory up to the second floor destroyed his whole Factory along with you know everybody's factories were destroyed. He had a six hundred million dollar market cap business in the stock market, disappeared, he rebuilt it, and then which has already made him an Iron Man in my eyes. And then next <laughs> thing you know, yeah. he woke up one morning and got a got a picture in his email, and his factory was on fire. His factory burnt wow. down and he had to rebuild it one more time. So yeah, amazing. You know, amazing. people have faced it. Yeah, damage. well, that, that was my
0: first time in Bangkok, and boy, that was what a first impression. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, and just so we can give the audience an update of kind of what you've been doing. I know, yeah. you know the, the 100 Baggers was such a great book and I think brought you a lot of notoriety from my perspective and made me think a lot. And even to this day, I'm talking about how do we you know, understand you know stocks that really are going to move type of thing. But just tell me what's going on in your life.
0: Yeah, so I started this fun woodlock house in late 2018 launched in January, 2019. Mm. And so I have a partner with Bill Bonner, the Bonner family who used to publish my newsletter, which you mentioned I wrote for those 15 years and uh, they seeded it with 25 million in capital and I have some outside investors. So that's really, that's the focus of what I'm doing now. And it's just a, uh, it's very simple it's a concentrated long only fund and Yeah, so that's it, and then I blog, like you mentioned, occasionally. So I still do all that same stuff. Still love to read and and write. So um, yeah, it's going pretty well. And if if you were to describe your method of investing, I mean, what? How would you describe it? Yeah, it's changed over time. I think mostly it has narrowed. So before I was, I would do a lot of different things. I would do special situations i would invest in different commodity stocks i I would do all kinds of stuff and now i've really narrowed it down to looking for those stocks that i talked about in that 100 baggers book not necessarily you know small cap names that i think will go up 100x but companies and businesses that exhibit those sorts of characteristics Mm. that are characterized by high returns on capital and have the ability to reinvest and more of the kind of stocks that you Say to yourself, yeah, this is something I could see myself owning for a decade, and less about trading or buying something that's temporarily undervalued and and so that's really what's changed the most right. and I'd say a couple of characteristics of that again in the portfolio, we only have ten stocks, so pretty concentrated hmm. and some of the keys to that to that approach, I would say um, one of the things people know me for too is that emphasizing the Insider so insider ownership owner operated type businesses or there's a family involved, right? Those interest me and when the balance sheet has to be very strong and So those are really those are the two big ones and um, I'd say characterize that approach,
1: right? And just out of curiosity, you know one of the challenges when somebody is looking for these kind of stocks is that I mean unless they aren't known which isn't that common anymore You know, you end up having to pay a pretty heavy price for them how do you think about value or price relative, You know, is it, or is it really like, look, price is a secondary issue, it's about getting quality first and then getting into it over time? Or how, how do you look at price when it comes to that kind of company?
0: Yes, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And so there's a scale, like you know, if you look at the super fantastic businesses, you're right. But you can find some very good, excellent businesses that trade somewhere in the realm of reasonable. If you're patient, you usually get a shot somewhere even those businesses will have 15 or 20% drawdowns every now and then but yeah you're going to probably pay more than you're used to if you're just looking at mm-hmm. the usual valuation metrics like a price earnings ratio or a free cash flow yield or something like that but you have to frame it against that return on invested capital and and the growth rate so those are things i think the market really keys on so some of these businesses i have at around 4 5% free cash flow, which I think are pretty good prices to pay for mm. these kinds of businesses. Mm. But every once in a while, yeah, you, you dip down and that's something I always struggle with. You get down to like, you know, 2% free cash flow yields or something. And it's like, wow, you know, you really got to be right yep. on the business. But yeah, I would say that's been one, one thing that's changed over time is that for a lot of years, it was always valuation first. And now I'm really much more focused on quality asset first. Right. And valuation is important. I don't want to say it's yeah. not important. It is important, but it's secondary to that. I won't, in other words, I won't buy something just because it's mm-hmm. you know, super cheap if it yep. doesn't have that, all the other quality aspects that I like.
1: It's interesting because you're talking about you know, return on invested capital. And you're talking about growth. And I developed since the last time that we've talked, I've developed a tool that I call world-class benchmarking. And it's basically measuring a composite score of profitability and growth. And what you realize is that you know, a company has to have both. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're opposing forces ultimately. Mm-hmm. And so what I try to do in that measure, I look at every company in the world against its global peers and rank it on a scale of one to 10. And that's how I kind of look at the fundamental aspect of a company before I look at price. So similar type of thing. I guess I have one other question for you about portfolio management. I wrote an academic paper that I published, you know, since the last time we met also. <laughs> and that's called, because actually I did my PhD since the last time we met. Oh wow! Congratulations! Uh, I, yeah, thank you. <laughs> I wrote a book called 10 Stocks Are Enough" in Asia, and I talk mm. about how the trade-off between risk and return, the optimum size is probably about ten. I tell individual investors, I said, never own less than ten, and mm. owning more than ten, you know, that you know, maybe fifteen, but if you get up to twenty, you might as well mm. buy an ETF of the market. Mm-hmm. And I'm just mm-hmm. curious. How do you manage the risk though? Because you know you, the risk that you run in this case, now for me these days, I use stop loss. Mm-hmm. And I manage 10 to 15 stocks in a portfolio, but I use a stop loss because I'm just lazy. I don't want to go back and look at it and think about it. I just mm-hmm. say, look, I'm, that's it. But I know in your style of investing, you know, it's not about just selling out because the stock went down, but when do you decide that a stock that is falling is something that you would say hey i gotta get out of this now
0: All Right. well that's a really good question um i'd say first you know the stocks that i own i'm kind of narrowing down a window so there shouldn't be stocks that just fall out of the sky for no reason certainly mm-hmm. anything can happen and it has happened i have made that <laughs> mistake anyway <laughs> but i think you know for me it's 10 percent would be the most i would go at cost on any position, mm-hmm. probably, you know, full position somewhere around eight. And then, you know, ideally I'd have somewhere between 10 and 12 names, something like that. And right. um, I also would prefer to sort of scale in. Although when you have, you know, there are certain events where you'd be more aggressive, obviously March and April, then then you probably wouldn't, uh, it wasn't a good idea to just scale, but you were mm-hmm. able to get some things cheap and just go get them. Yep. Yep. But then the key part is when you're talking about is how do you know you kind of win the sell, I think I always tell people that's the hardest part of investing when the sale. Nobody's really good at it. And I say, for me, the sale is if there's something that's materially changed with the company itself, less about the stock price. Yep. So if this is a company that I know really well and you know something's starting to go bad with it, I have to make the call to get out. Regardless of whether the price is mm. up or down, mm. but that's the that's the hard part of investing, I think. Yep. And in and in March, and particularly with this pandemic, that was a real test because my default is just to sit and hold on to things. But the pandemic was really a game changer, and it changed a lot of businesses. It would, you know, I couldn't just say, "Oh, well, things are just going to go on as normal." I mean, I yep. happen to have a portfolio with quite a bit of travel, aviation. I had an oil name in there. Mm. I mean, yeah, I had to make some, you know, pretty quick calls that, hey, this this was real and these businesses are gonna change. The way definitely. they run is gonna change, the economics are gonna change. And so I did sell quite a bit of stuff. I, I've yeah. told people, I've told my investors this already, that I had more turnover probably, not probably, I definitely had more turnover in February, March, and April running this portfolio than probably any time in my career. Right. Because it was just a surprise, you know. It's not like the financial crisis or, in the, or the tech bubble when that burst. You know, you knew kind of what was happening, mm. and I wasn't invested in things that were kind of on the front lines of where the problems were. Yep. But this case, you know, it was really taken by surprise and required those kinds of adjustments. So it's not easy. I mean, there's no, you know, simple rules. Yeah, that's the challenge. As I no. teach,
1: I teach in one of my online courses called Evaluation Masterclass. I say that the the number one rule in finance is that there are no rules in finance, you know yeah it yeah. is all the capital asset pricing model, hey. you know, modern portfolio theory, you know yep. so we don't have that it's also your, also
0: also your temperament that dictates a lot of this. I mean some people you know they can't stand sitting on a stock that goes down you know a third or something, and maybe it's going to go anywhere for a year or two, and that's fine, you know there's different mm. ways to to do this, so. That's true.
1: You know, you got to pick your style. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story.
0: Yeah. Well, at first I want to say like when people think about their worst investment ever, I think the knee-jerk reaction is to think of something that you bought that was a disaster, you know, Mm -hmm. that went down and lost a lot of money. But I think over a lifetime of investing. Now I've been doing this for twenty something years. I would say that's that's not the case. Actually, those are even things I've invested in that turned out to be disasters. The the dollar value of that mistake was tiny relative to other mistakes. And I'm going to talk about one. But mm-hmm. one obvious mistake is kind of the things that you you know didn't buy, <laughs> the mistakes of omission, the ones that don't show up in your track record, but that you know you did or something that you sold way too soon. Like I know that I, there was a time where I owned some Apple and it did reasonably well and sold it. It was one of the worst things ever. I I had some Microsoft for a little while when it was cheap and then sold it, which is a mistake. And this kind of ties into my worst investment mistake ever, which is not necessarily ticker symbol Hmm. or specific idea. It's more, it's more a mental attitude about something so for example so we went into the 2008 crisis you remember that was a big housing bubble and boom and that was apparent to me i wrote about at the time so i didn't own any banks i didn't have any home builder stocks i didn't have anything that was really related to housing i had a lot of other things i had you know natural resource stocks some other industrials and things like that and then when the crisis hit you know everything went down didn't really matter Some stuff, of course, went down, never came back, the financials and all that. But I remember, um, you know, my inclination during that time was to go ahead and buy the stuff that's cheap. I still had this attitude that to buy, you know, the cheapest stuff and you could find things that were trading at outrageous price earnings ratios or stuff that was trading down to its cash, even though those businesses weren't necessarily great businesses. They were, you know, they were involved in resources or oil extraction or And so I remember I picked up a number of those. And then after the crisis, you know, I would sell them here or there as they started to appreciate or get to different targets I had. But then what? You know, then you find yourself with all this with cash and the markets are a lot higher. And I really learned looking back, you know, there were some things I should have bought that if I had had this mentality instead, instead of looking for the cheapest thing, when you get those corrections and and market crashes, to buy the best stuff would have been such a much better strategy i mean there were stocks like mastercard and visa could have bought and become big big multi-backers and still would be stocks that you could hold you know a decade later more than a decade later i remember Danaher, another one costco these were stocks i didn't buy but they were the best of the best and i should have i should have bought those because a lot of stuff i was looking at this before the show i looked at last night i was looking at some of the things i held in 08 and none of them i don't have any of those now you know even though some they worked out as, you know, good, good trades in couple cases, you know, more than doubles, even triples. but it could have been so, so much better. So my biggest investment mistake, I think, is, is that. And so when this crisis happened with the pandemic in March, I remember coming out of the crisis, it was only took a couple of years for me to dawn on it what I should have been doing instead, And I remember vowing that next time I get an opportunity like that, I'm going to buy the best. And so when this pandemic happened in March, I, I sort of did that. I mean, I had a couple of companies that I really liked and I followed for a while. And yeah, I got a chance to get them at like a third off their highs. And that's what I bought, even though even at those prices still, they were not cheap, like on a just optically cheap, you know, when you just mm. first casually look at them. I was paying up to buy the best and it, and it panned out. You know, I, so far those have done very well. And those are stocks that I'm, Pretty certain that a decade from now, if I'm doing this show again with you, I'll be able to say, "Yes, I still got them." You know, I still got this. <laughs> if I did it right, so we'll see. But that's what I would tell people. That that's yeah. what my my biggest mistake was, uh, you know, going for cheap and and not. Mm-hmm. When you have a moment like that, when the whole market's in the tank at the same time, you know, just go ahead and buy the best stuff.
1: Well, I think that that you know, my next question is, what lessons did you learn? But I guess the lesson really is. Don't be lured by cheap
0: price. Yeah, I would tell. That's what I would tell people. Or you're investing now. Is the next time you get that kind of event in the market where the whole market's down, and it's going to happen. I mean, we market falls ten or fifteen percent typically in a year from peak to trough at some point. But you know, even if you have a, a crisis where it's where it's sharper, like and we had for March or an '08 or something like that, when those kind of things happen, just go for the you know. The, the very best companies. Everybody has a list of businesses. They think, oh, wow, that's really a great business, but they don't own it because it always seems too expensive, mm-hmm. you know? But those are the moments when you have, when you can, you swallow hard and buy those because that's yep. going to be your, that's going to be your chance. And then over the long term, you'll be happier because you'll, you know, five, 10 years later, you'll still own it yep. and yep. you want to pay taxes and then you'll be going up and you'll have a great investment. And so that's, that's my, that's my greatest mistake and that's my advice to your, your listeners.
1: Fantastic. Well, let me summarize some, what I take away from it. it. I mean, one of the things is that, you know, I'm just thinking about for the listeners out there, you know, have you, ever, have you ever walked by a store and you saw something on sale that you thought, this is nice and it's really good price, so you, you buy that pair of sneakers or you buy that shirt or jacket or pants that it doesn't fit kind of perfectly but the price is so good that you just got to get it. And then you get it home and then you wear it once and you realize this is too small. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, you think. and then that just brings me to what my mother has always said, which is just because it's cheap, doesn't mean you have to buy it. Right. So I think that, you know, that's a really good lesson. Yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing interesting about it is that as a broker for many years, for decades, you know, what we would say as a broker, pitching stock ideas, we'd say, buy the bad stuff when you're at the mm-hmm. bottom, because that's how it's going to fly, you know? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, so you can also be lured into those cheap stocks or volatile things by saying, oh, you know, I don't want to, you know, buy the low quality or the high quality stuff, because maybe that's not going to bounce back as much as this other stuff. And then I'm going to outperform for a month or six months or whatever.
0: Hey, that's absolutely probably true. That's, that's the lure, because you, those probably do come back. Those usually do come back more. Mm. And for the next you know, six months or whatever it is, you maybe do outperform for a year, but really investing is a long-term game. You know, you have to think long-term when I, when I did that book on hundred baggers, I mean, that's one thing that strikes me is a, you know, they weren't built in a day to make a hundred times your money. Sometimes, you know, the, the median for the stocks in there was about 20, 25 years, it was right. the hold. And, and think about how back-end loaded they are. You know, it's also interesting to look at, you know, at five years, you know, what you're up versus 10 or versus at 15. I mean, it really takes off. So,
1: yeah. 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 Who wants to hold a stock for 15 years? Oh my God. All
0: right. all right. All right. That's the hard part of it. I think that's probably, that's probably the hardest part because we could all, if we were to put together a basket of what we think could be great stocks and we put our favorite 10, if we were forced to hold them for 10 years, it'd probably all do well, you know mean? <laughs> but, but as human beings, you're, you're following things quarterly and there's stuff that goes on all the time and other stocks are flying and invariably you're going to hold something that goes nowhere. I mean, the other key lesson in that book, you know, the best stock was Berkshire Hathaway over the course that I did the study. But even that stock had a seven-year period where it went nowhere. You imagine holding a stock for seven years and have it go nowhere that's an eternity especially when you're a professional money manager and you're being evaluated on a quarterly basis by people That's an eternity to hold on to a name and yet that was the best performing stock in that study so i mean it's just uh it's the most hardest part i think is you know between our ears it's difficult uh,
1: it's uh reminds me of something that meb faber says and he's been on the show before but he talked about the idea of, you know, how long before you would dump an underperforming fund manager? And, he yeah. says, you know, and people say, you know, maximum three years, but probably, you know, two years or whatever. And he's like, you know, the answer to that should be a decade, you know, or even longer. Mm-hmm. And there's a perfect example of, you know, well, God, I really like this guy, Warren Buffett. I mean, I really think he's going to perform in the long run. <laughs> yeah, right. but, but it's going nowhere. You got to dump that thing. It's a dog. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's right that's right that's right i mean i i think one of the other ones is uh you know the other thing is just a drawdown so i remember monster beverage was a was a big winner but it had multiple periods where it would drop 30 or 40 percent quickly i mean it, it was at least a couple of different months where it dropped a third over the course of that run so i mean think about what a mistake it would have been to have been scared out of that at that time even berkshire hathaway was cut in half three different times in its life so wow it's that's the tough part
1: Ladies and gentlemen, go and get that book if you haven't read it. 100 Baggers, Stocks That Return, 100 to 1, and How to Find Them. And you're going to learn a hell of a lot. All right. So based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate?
0: Yeah, I would say, you know, get your shopping list together, your wish list. Go out today, find five businesses that you would love to own. And put them on a list, follow them, keep an eye on them and you'll get your chance. Next time you see a you know, 20% drawdown or something, go ahead and pick one up. That is great advice
1: and very actionable. You know, ladies and gentlemen, go out there, find those five stocks. Don't buy them. Right, don't buy them. Sit there, look at them, learn about them, you know, study them, watch their prices, and wait for your opportunity, because it mm-hmm. will come. <laughs> it will. All right, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12
0: months? Well, my number one goal, uh, <laughs> my number one goal investor is find one name. I like the one I, I talked about mm-hmm. if I could just find one more, I have some cash now. So yeah, I'm turning over a lot of rocks and it's all I got to do is find one. If I can find one, that will be mission accomplished for me in the next 12 months.
1: Can't wait to check in in 12 months. Yeah. Well, Listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Chris, I want to thank you for coming on the show and I want to congratulate you for being one of the brave ones. I say brave because when I ask people to come on the show, (laughs) they say, No, Andrew, I'd prefer to talk about my winners. (laughs) So you've now taken your worst investment and turned it into your best teaching moment do you have any parting words for the audience
0: well good luck good luck don't <laughs> give up be patient it's a tough game everyone makes mistakes so you just gotta keep soldiering on amen
1: ladies and gentlemen find him at chris w Mayer on twitter and that's a wrap on another great story to help us create grow and most importantly protect our well fellow risk takers this is Andrew Stott, your worst podcast host saying I'll see you on the upside.